Coming in at number two is Eusebius's History of the Church. I love church history. I love knowing more about the history of my people, about the nation of Christians, as St. Peter says. To see how the Holy Spirit has moved throughout the world since Pentecost fills my soul with joy. So it's no surprise that Eusebius's history made it to the top of this list. Eusebius means worships well or devout. He was the bishop of Caesarea in Israel and an advisor of Emperor Constantine. If you're not aware, Constantine famously founded the Catholic Church, made it illegal to be Baptist, and he helped stage the moon landings. Eusebius is considered an unreliable historian by many modern academics, and so that probably means that he's very reliable. Eusebius focuses mainly on the history of the first four centuries of the church. He begins with the Old Testament prophetic anticipations of Christ. He moves into the life of Christ, the sending of the apostles, the martyrdoms of the early Christians, the conversion of the nations, and the growth of the church. It's a phenomenal read. I'd highly recommend it. It would be far too lengthy for me to dwell well on everything that he touches on. We would be here for hours. So instead, I'll simply fire a shotgun blast of Eusebius birdshot. I'll summarize some of the more salient points of the book, and then we'll move on to hear from Eusebius himself. Eusebius birdshot. It is anachronistic to say, but Eusebius is postmillennial. He reads many passages of scripture preteristically, which many Christians today would read futuristically. He gives us detailed accounts of the turmoil and affliction that happened to the Jews leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. He tells us many times how extensively and quickly Christianity spread. It's hard to read him as anything other than postmillennial. He is also, for lack of a better term, covenantal. He talks about the faith of Christians existing from the beginning of the world, going all the way back through Abraham to Adam. He talks about the lawgivers and the philosophers preparing the way for the gospel. I'm not sure if he's talking about the pagan philosophers or if he's talking about the Mosaic law, which gained respect among the heathen nations when the Jews were in their Babylonian diaspora. Either way, he puts forward some form of a preparatio evangelica. He actually wrote another work, by this name. Eusebius quotes extensively from other historians, both Greek and Jew, and many other early church fathers, so we get a good sense of the prominent voices of the first few centuries. Eusebius gives us the accounts of the apostles and where they went and their martyrdoms. He also gives us many accounts of various persecutions and martyrdoms of other Christians in the following centuries. We learn about how these persecutions came and went, how some were local and sporadic, while others were more widespread spread and extensive. Eusebius records for us some of the brutality and the horrific torture that involved these martyrdoms, and so it's it's pretty heavy reading at points. Eusebius also records for us the miraculous that occurred during these martyrdoms and in other places. Eusebius gives us insight into the formation of the canon. Just a, a quick example, he thinks that Paul wrote Hebrews in Hebrew, and that either Luke or Clement translated it into King James English. I'm just kidding. Uh, of course, they translated it into Greek. We get a good look into the various internal struggles of the church, like the Montanists or the bishops who turned over the sacred scriptures during times of persecution. This is where we get the word traitor from. The Latin is uh, tradador, which means one who hands over. And so it's the these bishops who handed over the scriptures to be burned. We get a survey of all kinds of various heresies, and then we get the record of these heresies being defeated. 
He gives us insight into early church life, like the custom of having bishops, something that is just assumed without controversy, or the practice of confirmation, or excommunication, or the continuation of the gifts, or the fact that the church did not practice rebaptism, or the fact that there were Christian soldiers contrary to the selective readings of some pacifist Anabaptists, or that bishops would encourage capable laypersons to preach the gospel, or that sometimes individuals would exercise individual judgment when it came to excommunication or disassociation with not only other sinful Christians, but with sinful presbyters. There are all kinds of things that support and contradict every tradition. What I love about this history is that Eusebius speaks like a Christian. He speaks of avenging curses that came on God's enemies, saying things like earthquakes were sent as divine judgment for some sin, or someone died a terrible death, like Herod because of his evil treatment of Christ and the slaughter of innocence in Bethlehem, or that the Jews suffered greatly, Jerusalem was destroyed, and that the Jews were exiled due to their unbelief in their crucifixion of Christ, as well as their self-malediction of letting his blood be on them and their children. He also tells us that when Caius the emperor set up images of himself in the Jewish temple and other places of Jewish worship, that it was a divine providence related to the Jews saying that they had no king but Caesar. In the culminating ascendancy of Christianity during Eusebius's time, he speaks in post millennial terms. He compares the glory of the kingdom under Constantine to something like the Solomonic kingdom. It's also worth noting that Constantine simply gave Christians the freedom to practice their religion along with other religions. It wasn't that Christianity became the state religion immediately and all other religions were outlawed. If you read Constantine's edict, it sounds classically liberal. And I bring this up simply to annoy the autistic Christian nationalists out there. Covenant theology. If one were to recognize the unity of the faith from the old covenants to the new covenants, we might call this covenant theology. Eusebius argues that Christianity is not a new faith, but the ancient faith. So let us turn to Eusebius and hear him in his own words. But that no one may suppose that his doctrine is new and strange as if it were framed by a man of recent origin, differing in no respect from other men, let us now briefly consider this point also. It is admitted that when in recent times the appearance of our Savior Jesus Christ had become known to all men, there immediately made its appearance a new nation, a nation confessedly not small, and not dwelling in some corner of the earth, but the most numerous and pious of all nations, indestructible and unconquerable, because it always receives assistance from God. This nation, thus suddenly appearing at the time appointed by the inscrutable counsel of God, is the one which has been honored by all with the name of Christ. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the church. He calls the church a nation, just as St. Peter does in his letter. I love this because it ought to be the way that all Christians think of themselves and the nation they belong to, which is the church, rather than getting into these silly debates over Christian nationalism and natural affections. Yes, love your natural family and your natural nation. Be a patriot. Go to your family reunions. However, supernatural affections always come first. Lewis says somewhere that when we love first things first, we love second things better. That is is the answer to all of this. So if your supernatural affections are under your natural affections, you have a disordered love. You have disordered affections. If natural affections come into conflict with supernatural affections, supernatural affections ought to win out. One must prioritize them. 
And if you do that, you might do things that Jesus talks about, like, I don't know, leaving your family or what Abraham did, left his fa- left his nation, left his father's house to follow God, to follow the gospel. It's not that complicated. Be a patriot, love your family, follow God above all else. It's very, it's quite simple. Rightly order your affections and you'll be all right. Eusebius continues, speaking of the Christian nation, one of the prophets, when he saw beforehand with the eye of the divine spirit that which was to be, was so astonished at it that he cried out, and he's quoting Isaiah here, who hath heard of such things, and who hath spoken thus? Hath the earth brought forth in one day, and hath a nation been born at once? And the same prophet gives a hint also of the name by which the nation was to be called, when he says, Those that serve me shall be called by a new name, which shall be blessed upon the earth. But although it is clear that we are new, in that this new name of Christians has really but recently been known among all nations, nevertheless, our life and our conduct with our doctrines of religion have not been lately invented by us, but from the first creation of man, so to speak, have been established by the natural understanding of divinely favored men of old. He goes on to speak of the righteous men prior to the flood and afterward, and then he says, if anyone should assert that all those who have enjoyed the testimony of righteousness from Abraham himself back to the first man were Christians in fact, if not in name, he would not go beyond the truth. So there you have it, the continuity of the Christian faith going all the way back to the first man. This is enshrined in one of the Reformed Confessions, the Belgic Confession or the Second Helvetic, I'm, I'm not sure, but they talk about the church going all the way back to the garden, uh, which is correct. Eusebius goes on to say that the promise given to Abraham is fulfilled in the Christian nation. Postmillennialism, Preterism, and Daniel. Eusebius views Daniel's prophecies as fulfilled in the coming of Christ. He gives an historical accounting of the intertestamental period leading up to Christ, and then he says this, These things have been recorded by us in order to show that another prophecy has been fulfilled in the appearance of our Savior Jesus Christ. For the scripture in the book of Daniel, having expressly mentioned in a certain number of weeks until the coming of Christ, of which we have treated in other books, most clearly prophesies that after the complete of those weeks, the unction among the Jews should totally perish. And this, it has been clearly shown, was fulfilled at the time of the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This has been necessarily promised by us as a proof of the correctness of the time. Oftentimes people will talk about, you know, what the early church fathers believed and I mean, it's, it's, it's a mishmash of a lot of things, but Eusebius certainly is making a lot of similar points that postmillennialists will make, particularly in reading things preteristically in, in this way. Postmillennialism, the leaven of the gospel. Eusebius goes on to tell us how quickly Christianity spread throughout the whole world. This is recorded for us in the New Testament, and here Eusebius is echoing what the apostles and their associates have already said. Eusebius says, Thus, under the influence of heavenly power and with the divine cooperation, the doctrine of the Savior, like rays of the sun, quickly illumined the whole world, and straight away, in accordance with the divine scriptures, the voice of the inspired evangelist and apostles went forth through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In every city and village, churches were quickly established, filled with multitudes of people like a replenished threshing floor. And those whose minds, in consequence of errors which had descended to them from their forefathers, were fettered by the ancient disease 
seas of idolatrous superstition were, by the power of Christ, operating through the teaching and the wonderful works of his disciples, set free, as it were, from terrible masters, and found a release from the most cruel bondage. They renounced with the abhorrence every species of demonical polytheism, and confessed that there was only one God, the creator of all things, and him they honored with the rites of true piety through the inspired and rational worship which has been planted by our Savior among men. Just a great record of the leaven of the gospel leavening the lump of the world. Postmillennialism, Christ is truly king. Eusebius then speaks of Christ as a king unlike any other king. He says, Thus Jesus Christ our Savior is the only one from all eternity who has been acknowledged even by those highest in the earth, not as a common king among men, but as a son of the universal God and who has been worshipped as very God in that rightly. For what king that ever lived attained such virtue as to fill the ears and tongues of all men upon earth with his own name? What king, after ordaining such pious and wise laws has extended them from one end of the earth to the other so that they are perpetually read in the hearing of all men who has abrogated barbarous and savage customs of uncivilized nations by his gentle and most philanthropic laws who being attacked for entire ages by all has shown such superhuman virtue as to flourish daily and remain young throughout his life who has founded a nation which of old was not even heard of but which now is not concealed in some corner of the earth but is spread abroad everywhere under the sun who has so fortified his soldiers with the arms of piety that their souls being firmer than adamant shine brilliantly in the contest with their opponents what king prevails to such an extent and even after death leads on his soldiers and sets up trophies over his enemies and fills every place country and city greek and barbarian with his royal dwellings even divine temples with their consecrated oblations like this very temple with its superb adornments and votive offerings, which are themselves so truly great and majestic, worthy of wonder and admiration and clear signs of the sovereignty of our Savior. For now, too, he spake, and they were made. He commanded, and they were created. For what was there to resist the nod of the universal king and governor and word of God himself? Just a fantastic record and description of the conquering of the gospel in the first few centuries of the church and just the accolades giving to our Savior Jesus as King of Kings. Just a, a wonderful passage there. Eusebius cites Jewish historian Josephus, and he does this quite a bit. Speaking of Josephus, Eusebius says this, The same historian records another fact still more wonderful than this. He says that a certain oracle was found in their sacred writings which declared that at that time a certain person should go forth from their country to rule the world. He himself understood that this was fulfilled in Vespasian. But Vespasian did not rule the whole world but only that part of it which was subject to the Romans. With better right could it be applied to Christ, to whom it was said by the Father, Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the ends of the earth for thy possession. At that very time, indeed, the voice of his holy apostles went throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Eusebius uh, citing the Psalms there, and, and probably Acts, I believe. I'm sure every eschatological position acknowledges Jesus as king somehow, but this kind of full-throated, hearty praise of Christ as king and truly as king and what he's done on the earth, in my view, is really seen most fully in post-millennial outlooks. And uh, Eusebius articulates this kind of optimistic post-millennialism, these truths of Christ as king and what he's done on the earth. He articulates these 
quite well. Postmillennialism, Preterism, and 70 AD. Eusebius regularly connects the prophecies that Christ makes about a tribulation, not to a future tribulation in his future, but to a past tribulation that happened to the Jews immediately following Christ's ascension into heaven, or uh, in the years subsequent to this, the tribulation that happened in the first century. In speaking of Josephus's account of the horrific destruction of Jerusalem, Eusebius says, It is fitting to add to these accounts the true prediction of our Savior in which he foretold these very events. Eusebius goes on to quote various parts of Jesus's Olivet Discourse. His words are as follows, Woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days, but pray that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For there shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. The historian, reckoning the whole number of the slain, says that 1,100,000 persons perished by famine and the sword, and that the rest of the rioters and robbers, being betrayed by each other after the taking of the city, were slain. But the tallest of the youths and those that were distinguished for beauty were preserved for the triumph. Of the rest of the multitude, those that were over 17 years of age were sent as prisoners to labor in the works of Egypt, while still more were scattered through the provinces to meet their death in the theaters by the sword and by beasts. Those under 17 years of age were carried away to be sold as slaves, and of these, along the number reached 90,000. These things took place in this manner in the second year of the reign of Vespasian, in accordance with the prophecies of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who by divine power saw them be beforehand as if they were already present and wept and mourned according to the statement of the holy evangelist who give the very words which he uttered when as if addressing jerusalem herself he said and then he goes on to quote the scriptures of jesus weeping over jerusalem and then he quotes more of the olivet discourse and then he says and this is exactly my thoughts <laughs> If anyone compares the words of our Savior with the other accounts of the historian concerning the whole war, how can one fail to wonder and to admit that the foreknowledge and the prophecy of our Savior were truly divine and marvelously strange? Fantastic. All right, he goes on to add that God's good providence withheld full judgment for 40 years after the Jews' crime against Christ. So again, he's being a Christian here. He's making theological comments and noticing God's goodness and his long-suffering, even with those who who had crucified Christ. He says this, Divine providence thus still proved itself long-suffering toward them, in order to see whether by repentance for what they had done they might obtain pardon and salvation. And in addition to such long-suffering, providence also furnished wonderful signs of the things which were about to happen to them if they did not repent. So here... You know, Eusebius is echoing what Peter says in his letter that God is patient with us and he doesn't want anyone to perish but for all to come to repentance. And when he mentions these signs, you can go to the postmillennial series and take a look at some of those sermons where I quote Josephus and all of the miraculous signs that occurred over Jerusalem. There hung a, a star that looked like a sword and, and both Jewish and Greek historians saw what appeared to be armies in the sky over Jerusalem. And there's all kinds of things like this. The, the Eastern Gate opened up. Up. There's all kinds of omens and, and things like this from the Lord, and that's what he's referring there, kind of showing them that they, they needed to repent and get out apocalyptic preterism. One of the last persecutions before Constantine came with relief occurred under Emperor Valerian. I believe this was the second to last persecution. Eusebius tells us that Valerian started out very friendly toward Christians, but then there was a Jewish leader of a synagogue who convinced him to turn against the Christians, which is the pattern of the early church. The Jews were very viciously against the Christians and often they're, you know, bringing the sticks to the pyre to burn Christians. 
Christians and things like this. What's interesting for our purposes is that Eusebius believes that Valerian's persecution was a fulfillment of what John had prophesied with the sea beast in Revelation. Eusebius relates an account from another work. In like manner, it is revealed to John. For there was given to him, he says, a mouth speaking great things in blasphemy. And there was given unto him authority and forty and two months. Then Eusebius makes this comment. It is wonderful that both of these things occurred under Valerian. So 42 months is three and a half years. Valerian's persecution occurred for three and a half years. That's really interesting. And it's interesting for a couple of reasons. One, Eusebius is reading Revelation preteristically. He's putting its fulfillment, at least that part, in, in his past. Second, it creates some difficulties with fellow preterists because that passage is likely referring to Nero. That's how I would read it. And Nero's persecution also lasted for three and a half years. You can just say that these things repeat themselves or all of history is typologically related and, you know, things like this. But I do think the immediate fulfillment came with Nero. In any case, do with that information what you will. The martyrdom of St. James. Since martyrdom is such a large piece of this history, it's appropriate to let Eusebius speak on the subject. We'll look at what he says about St. James. Eusebius gives us multiple accounts of St. James's martyrdom. He relays accounts from Clement, Hegesippus, and Josephus. Eusebius says, after Paul, in consequence of his appeal to Caesar, had been sent to Rome by Festus, the Jews being frustrated in their hope of entrapping him by the snares which they had laid for him, turned against James, the brother of the Lord, to whom the episcopal seat at Jerusalem had been entrusted by the apostles. The following daring measures were taken against him. Leading him into their midst, they demanded of him, that he should renounce faith in Christ in the presence of all the people. But, contrary to the opinion of all, with a clear voice and with greater boldness than they had anticipated, he spoke out before the whole multitude and confessed that our Savior and Lord Jesus is the Son of God. But they were unable to bear longer the testimony of the man who, on account of the excellence of his ascetic virtue and of piety, which he exhibited in his life, was esteemed by all as the most just of men, and consequently they slew him. He goes on to say that this happened more easily because Jerusalem was in anarchy after the death of Festus. What I just read, that was Eusebius's summary. It's a good summary. He quotes Josephus who says that the Jews that were punished for killing James. Josephus says that James was a just man and that the suffering in their destruction of Jerusalem was a consequence of their killing him. And then Eusebius quotes Hegesippus and Hegesippus gives a more detailed account. Hegesippus says of James. He was holy from his mother's womb, and he drank no wine nor strong drink, nor did he eat flesh. No razor came upon his head. He did not anoint himself with oil, and he did not use the bath. He alone was permitted to enter the holy place, for he wore not woolen but linen garments, and he was in the habit of entering alone in the temple, and was frequently found upon his knees begging forgiveness for the people, so that his knees became hard like those of a camel, in consequence of his constantly bending them in the worship of God. God and asking forgiveness for the people. He then describes how the Pharisees and the Sadducees had asked James to address the people concerning Jesus. And once James was on the pinnacle of the temple, James says, Why do you ask me concerning Jesus, the Son of Man? He himself sits in heaven at the right hand of the great power and is about to come upon the clouds of heaven. So they went up and threw down the just man and said to each other, Let us stone James the just. And they began to stone him, for he was not killed by the fall, but he turned 
turned and knelt down and said, I entreat you, Lord God, our father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And one of them who was a fuller took the club with which he beat out clothes and struck the just man on the head. And thus he suffered martyrdom and they buried him on the spot by the temple. He became a true witness, both to Jews and Greeks, that Jesus is the Christ. And immediately Vespasian besieged them. What's remarkable here is that James says Jesus is about to come upon the clouds of heaven, and Eusebius concludes this section by reference to Vespasian's immediate siege of Jerusalem. If you're interested in more on this topic, I dedicate a couple of sermons to what the Bible has to say about clouds, and you can find them in the description. But coming on clouds in brief is a sign of judgment, or that's one of the things it can symbolize. And this is what James meant when he said that Jesus was going to come soon on clouds. There's another sermon on James in the last days. If you're interested, you can check that out in the description or the transcript. So we have this kind of supplement to a, a preteristic reading, a post-millennial reading, a one that views these judgments, these this return of Christ in a preteristic way, alongside just the weightiness of the martyrdom itself. And often you see this, that the martyrs don't die easily. It's pretty heavy stuff fuzzy canon. Eusebius goes on to say, these things are recorded in regard to James, who is said to be the author of the first of the so-called Catholic epistles, but it is to be observed that it is disputed. At least, not many of the ancients have mentioned it, as is the case likewise with the epistle that bears the name of Jude, which is also one of the seven so-called Catholic epistles. Nevertheless, we know that these also, with the rest, have been read publicly in very many churches. This kind of thing doesn't bother me one iota, but uh, I think it probably bothers a certain cast of uh, Protestant mind. The formation of the canon was messy, and the, the borders of the canon were fuzzy, and that's okay. It doesn't bother me, and there are many instances like this in the, in the history which Eusebius uh, gives us. It, it gives us insight into the formation and God's providential oversight of how uh, the scriptures came to us. Prima Scriptura. Eusebius appears to give us a first-hand account of a dispute that happened with a bishop in Egypt named Nepos. Eusebius lays out the issue, uh, which is actually, it's related to postmillennialism. It's a kind of millenarian position that he's debating with this bishop. So Eusebius lays out the issue. He explains how he and others engaged in the debate over this issue and how they used reason and the scriptures. He ends by saying this, we were not ashamed to change our opinions and agree with others, but on the contrary, conscientiously and sincerely and with hearts laid open before God, we accepted whatever was established by the proofs and teachings of the Holy Scriptures. There's no mention of the Bishop of Rome here adjudicating and deciding. There's no mention of a magisterium or a council adjudicating and deciding. There's no mention of a tradition that answers these things. Eusebius was open to discussing this issue using reason and scripture. Scripture is the guide. Continuation of the gifts. I've quoted this elsewhere, but it's good to mention again. Eusebius quotes Irenaeus, who clearly testifies to the continuation of the gifts well beyond the apostolic era. Wherefore, his true disciples, receiving grace from him, perform such works in his name for the benefit of other men, as each has received the gift from him. For some of them drive out demons effectually and truly. 
so that those who have been cleansed from evil spirits frequently believe and unite with the church. Others have a foreknowledge of future events and visions and prophetic revelations. Still others heal the sick by the laying on of hands and restore them to health. And, as we have said, even dead persons have been raised and remained with us many years. But why should we say more? It is not possible to recount the number of gifts which the church throughout all the world has received from God in the name of Jesus Christ, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and exercises every day for the benefit of the heathen, never deceiving any, nor doing it for money. For as she has received freely from God, freely also does she minister. As also we hear that many brethren in the church possess prophetic gifts and speak through the Spirit with all kinds of tongues, and bring to light the secret things of men for their good, and declare the mysteries of God. <laughs> Man, this... This church doesn't sound Anglican. It doesn't sound Presbyterian. It doesn't sound Lutheran. It doesn't sound Baptist. It doesn't sound Roman Catholic, nor does it sound Eastern Orthodox. What it does sound like is Pentecostal. That's not a full-throated endorsement of Pentecostalism, but at least Pentecostals believe this stuff and practice it. And, oh, oh, there's some out there that are fake and that fake these things. Yeah, okay, there's counterfeits. Counterfeits don't prove that something's not true. All right, here's the last thing. Eusebius records for us the writings of a Roman presbyter, which shows visions and oral revelations as an acceptable way of hearing from God and being used in doctrinal judgments against heretics. <laughs> He records what this Roman presbyter says. I examine the works and traditions of the heretics, defiling my mind for a little time with their abominable opinions, but receiving this benefit from them, that I refuted them by myself and detested them all the more. And when a certain brother among the presbyters restrained me, fearing that I should be carried away with the filth of their wickedness, for it would defile my soul, in which also, as I perceived, he spoke the truth, a vision sent from God came and strengthened me. And the word which came to me commanded me, saying distinctly, Read everything which thou can, take in hand, for thou art able to correct and prove all. And this has been to thee from the beginning the cause of your faith. I receive the vision as agreeing with the apostolic word, which says to them that are stronger, be skillful money changers. Imagine a Anglican priest or a a uh, uh, Lutheran pastor saying, I heard from God this, and he affirmed me in doing these things. Yeah, I, I imagine you might actually find guys like this, but we live in this like highly cessationist era where this kind of stuff is, I think it's probably just people are embarrassed to be associated with kind of the more goofy Pentecostals. <laughs> you kind of caught me off guard here, okay. And they want to be, they want to appear to be intelligent and respectable. Oh, that's correct. And so it's easier to just deny the Catholic practice of the church, which has always accepted the continuation of the gifts. When he says be skillful money changers at the end there, it's what's called an agraphon, which is, it's a saying of Christ that isn't recorded in the Gospels. And since people lose their minds when we suggest such things, we'll just say it's a good bit of wisdom. Money changers needed to know the difference between counterfeit and real money. And so the point of this word is to be able to distinguish between orthodox and heretical teachings. That's what he had heard, and that's what he decided to go with as far as proving these, these heretics wrong. So Eusebius's History of the Church is a fantastic read. I would highly recommend it. You should check it out.